electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, your best stock strategies in the quarter ahead. Our investment committee here today, along with two top fund managers, Corvex Capital's Keith Meister, Kasdan Capital's Eli Kasdan. He specializes in health and life sciences investing. We're going to try and get you as many names as possible today. With me for the hour, Megan Shu, the head of investment strategy at the Wilmington Trust. Jim Labenthal is here along with John Nigerian, Steve Weiss. I'll take you to the wall. The S&P hitting a new record high yet again today and crossing above 4,000 for the first time ever, currently sitting about six points or so above that level. Rates on the all the way on the right-hand side, dipping a little bit. You see the 10-year note yield is up. Rates are down. The NASDAQ is ripping as a result. So, Steve Weiss, I turn to you. New quarter, right? First day of it. The two R's matter more than anything else. Rates and the recovery, is that how we see it? I think that's going to be the playbook going forward. It's going to be rates. Now, the market's absorbed where we are in rates. And I think if we march up slowly, we'll continue to absorb that. But as we've seen in the past, and past is prologue, prologue, when you get a huge move, then the market sort of blanches. So the best thing is that tomorrow's jobs number is going to happen in the dark of night. The market won't be open. So if you see these big numbers that some of the firms are talking about, and the whisper numbers, a million jobs, I don't remember ever having seen a million jobs, then you'll see, I think, rates move up on Monday. Mm, right. But again, it'll be observed, absorbed. It won't be a knee-jerk reaction as if the market were open. And to me, the economy as the backdrop and the recovery, to your point, is so strong that you'll continue to see the market do well. But there will be, and this is the last point, Scott, to me, there will be more stock selection going forward okay. and less of the stage right, stage left. Well, let's talk about that, Megan, right? Um, higher rates, potentially bad for tech, strong recovery, you know, maybe tough for parts of tech, which says to me exactly why you're doing what you are doing. And that is you are moving and you're overweight now in cyclical sectors like financials, industrials, uh, materials and energy plays right into your hands here. Absolutely. Yeah, we are very um, optimistic on the economic outlook over the next 12 months. We see the likelihood of the economy actually surprising to the upside as as pretty good. The consensus estimates are for six to six and a half percent GDP this year. Um, we could see as high as nine. So I think when you have that environment, uh, the risk is to the upside on rates. Um, and our expectation for the 10 year yield is north of two percent which in that type of an environment, a 10 year moving to two to two and a quarter, uh, value beats growth about 75% of the time. So we've rotated further into cyclicals, further into value equities. Um, I don't think the magnitude of the outperformance will be what it was over the past couple of months, Um, but we do think it's an environment conducive for financials, industrials, and even parts of the technology sector that are starting to look cheap. Yeah. Well, right. And it depends on which part of the technology sector. And, and that is, is absolutely critical. So 
Jim Labenthal, have, have I simplified this too much? Have I overdone it in thinking that, okay, it's all about rates and the recovery and that if rates continue to move up because the recovery continues to be strong and gets even stronger, then the areas that have suffered in recent months are going to continue to suffer and that Megan's strategy is the best one. So I, I don't mind you simplifying it at all. Um, don't take offense that I, I don't think rates are going to matter as much. And here's why. You know, we've gone up over 100 basis points in about six months. Uh, Ten years at what, 1.70 percent? Maybe it gets to 2.2 percent. Uh, another 50 basis points. That means we're two thirds of the way there. The punch from rising interest rates is going to wear off a little bit. It's for that reason that I have been and remain constructive, very constructive on Apple, Qualcomm, Microsoft, the reasonably priced growth that are reasonably priced stocks, uh, particularly in technology. But what I do think is going to matter, and I'm kind of surprised we haven't really been talking about this in recent days, earnings are going to come up and there's going to be a tug of war because you are probably going to have some weakness in the first quarter. Why? Because of the Texas weather phenomenon, the Suez Canal blockage, chip shortage. And the question is whether the market will look through that. I think it will. Here's why. Take a look at an industrial like General Motors. Yes, their production has been hampered by mm -hmm. chip shortages, but their selling prices are going to be much higher because they're not giving any incentives. They're selling for full bore any truck they can. So I think we're going to look past that. But I think earnings are what's going to matter going forward. Let me ask you this then, right? You, you mentioned that stocks like Apple are going to be able to absorb higher rates and you'll you know, eventually look past the move that we get. Why is Apple then down 8% in this quarter? And it was one of the worst performing Dow stocks, if not the worst, in that period of time. Why, why is that? It's a simple answer and you already know it. It's because rates went from 0.6% six months ago to 1.7% now, but that's history. That's history. That's my opinion. It's history. Yeah, you know, rates are going to go higher. I think we agree on that. I think Apple's earnings are going to shine through. And at the same constant multiple, you're going to see a rise in, in uh, share price from where we are right now. Steve, I mean, I, I've, I've made this point before. I mean, you guys can disagree with it. Rates can go up for the right reason, and that can be the disclaimer, and everybody can wrap their arms around that and feel better about the move in rates, right? It doesn't matter, though. If, if rates go up, there's going to continue to be an adjustment in the market. You know, those stocks that are most susceptible to a move higher in rates aren't just going to say to themselves, and investors aren't just going to sit back and say, well, you know, rates, they did go up for the right reason, so there's no reason for these stocks to go down. They are going to have an adjustment if rates go up near 2.2%, as Farmer Jim just suggested they might. Yeah, well, well, first of all, simplifying in front of asking Jim a question is always the right thing to do. <laughs> but in terms of rates, the real concern, the real concern is when the Fed starts raising rates, not when the market starts taking them up. Well, that's not going to be anytime soon says, then. Okay. Right? So you've just cleared the runway well, then. Uh, that, you see, that's, that's you the cleared difference. the runway that's, then. That's the difference. Right. But I don't I don't necessarily think so, because the market right now say, OK, another 25 bips. That's sort of damaging. But when the Fed starts turning and I think it'll be a lot sooner, I don't believe their dot plot. I'm with Megan that you're going to have a much stronger economy. I believe inflation will pick up a lot sooner in the second half, if not sooner. And then the Fed's going to say, OK, we're raising. So they go by 25 bips. Maybe they go by 50. But then the market starts looking forward and saying, well, they got to unwind. They got to get up to 3% to 
to match where bonds are, match where yields are, and that's where the market will take a big pause right, and hold, trade hold down. Hold on a second. Until so, then, I'm with well, Jim. So you think that the market and this this whole sort of upset that we've you know felt lately is the market calling you know what uh, on the Fed that Jay Powell can sit up there and say as many times as he wants that inflation is temporary and it's transitory and the dots say we're not raising rates through 2023 and all of that is meaningless because the move in inflation and rates is going to force the Fed's hand more than the Fed wants to admit. Exactly. And I think that was very, very evident. And the proof of that theory came after Powell's press conference at the Fed meeting a couple of weeks ago, where the market said, we don't buy it. You know, we're hearing one thing about inflation being transitory, but we don't believe it. So we think you're going to have to catch up to the market. And that's what's going to happen. So you'll see a rapid Fed increase in rates, you know, at least initially. But then it'll take a while to peter out. But the market will adjust. That will be an opportunity to buy. Jim, you know, you you seem overly positive on, on where you think the market can go, not overly worried about the move in rates and what the reaction is going to be. Yet, I don't see you making a whole lot of moves in the market anticipating what you're talking about, are you? No, you know what? I've already done it. So, um, and you, you're, what I think what you're alluding to is around January of this year, sold CAT, sold Winnebago. You know, cash came up to about 13%. That's been whittled down to about 5%. And you've seen me make the moves along the way, whether it was buying uh, bu- a little bit more of Boeing, a little bit more of Apple, a little bit more of Qualcomm. That actually turned out to be a lot more of all three of those. I feel really good right now, Scott. I mean, I'm a little nervous about how good I feel, so I start looking over my shoulder. And you know the thing that I am worried about is taxes. But honestly, we're six months away from that coming into focus. That legislative process, it's going to be ugly, by the way, but that's six months away before we come to what the final number is. My hope is that the corporate tax rate goes to 25%, not 28%. The market will live with that. There's a lot of reasons to be positive. Monetary stimulus, well, fiscal giving, stimulus, vaccines. I got to tell you, man, you're giving the market the benefit of the doubt on an awful lot, right? Rates are going to go to 2.2%. Ah, the market's so? going to live with that. Corporate tax rate's going to go from 21 to 25. Ah, the market's going to live with that. There are real adjustments that take place, though, right? I mean, there are earnings I like, that have to be I, refigured, and then stock like, prices, which react off earnings. I really like that I'm getting labeled as a happy-go-lucky guy because, honestly, and you've known me for eight years, that's not how I'm known. But the truth is I do feel optimistic. I mean, let's just take rates, and I'm sorry, I'm just going to repeat myself. We're at 1.7%. Where did we start the year out? Was it 1%? I mean, that's one heck of a move. Yeah, I think we're going higher, but I think the punch from that, I think it loses its strength. I really do. You, anybody can disagree with me and they can sell stocks here, but I'm not going to. No right. way. I will say this, though, Scott. I do want to add one thing. Yeah. You know, you know, there are portions of this market I do not like. All right. The stocks that are trading at dozens of times of sales, that's not for me. Don't tell me you're going to grow into a, uh, a total addressable market that's equal to your market cap. Not interested. I know, unless the name is Roku. But well, that's neither here nor there. But we can talk about that some other time. <laughs> all right. John Najarian. Uh, we- I couldn't resist. Well, it's supposed to be with us. Okay. It's good. Now he's with us on the phone. John, are you there? Yes, I am, Scott. All right. It's and good hopefully to hear. I'll get up Skype or something soon. All right. Please work on that. I, I, I'd like to see your face in, in something other than the photo on the right-hand side of your screen. Let me ask you this, Doc, okay? I, I'm presuming um, you've heard the conversation up to this point, right? 
Yes, so I am. will you tell me why you think Q2 is going to be any different than Q1 in terms of stocks like Boeing and American Airlines, the cruise lines, the casinos, the hotels, which have outperformed? If we're only going to be entering a more robust economic environment, why is that not going to continue where stocks like Apple were lower relative to the ones that I just named and those high growth tech names were a virtual disaster for many of them in the quarter? Well, I, I think that those reopening names that you said just uh, 30 seconds ago are the ones that are going to continue to outperform. Casinos, airlines, cruise lines, yes, because the more that we get back out there, Scott, the more hospitality the more travel is going to pick up. Um, and that will exceed the uh, lift that you get from owning the big tech names. But the big tech names, they're the ones that struggled against that 80 basis point jump in the 10-year. Um, now, that we, you know, we're down 4% on that today, the 10-year. We're back down to 167. Um, and I don't think they're going to see another 80-bit jump in the 10-year in this quarter, Scott. So without that, if we're trading, you know, back and forth, let's say, you know, 20 bips up and, you know, pulling back another 10, you know, sort of stair-stepping, I think the techs will do extremely well in that environment because they're not going to be faced with that, you know, near doubling in that 10-year cost. So I think that and everything that Jim cited just a moment ago about, uh, you know, his optimism, I share about this quarter. All right. And under, understandably so. Look, a lot of people are optimistic. Uh, speaking of optimism, there is a lot about an IPO today. It is Compass, the uh, real estate firm, has now opened for trading. Let's go check it out. It's a, it's a winner in the session right now at uh, about uh, quarter past 12. If we can pull up the chart again, take a look at Compass, the IPO. There it is. Right now it's up about 16 percent. Uh, you can see it right there. We'll uh, we'll keep our price. Uh, we'll keep our, our eye on that. Hey, I was looking at the offering price uh, of 18 and it's north of 20, pushing 21. So that's Compass today. C-O-M-P is the symbol there. Let's welcome in our headliner now. Keith Meister is the CIO and founder of Corvex Capital. He joins us live on the heels of his second SPAC deal. Mr. Meister, good to see you. Hey, Scott. How are you? Thanks for having me today. I'm, I'm good. Thanks. It's good to see you. Uh, congratulations on your second SPAC deal. Thank you. Uh, let's get to the markets first before we talk SPACs, uh, because the S&P hits another new high today. And when you were with us almost two months ago, you were constructive on the market, looking ahead to you know, all of the liquidity that's still out there and, and the recovery and the reopening. Yet the market feels different than it did when we spoke uh, some, some almost two months ago. How, how do you see it now? So, so let's look back quickly. For all the uncomfort and uncertainty you're talking about, Scott, the S&P was up about 6.5% in the first quarter on relatively low vol. So the market performed quite well. Underneath uh, the surface, there was a lot of change in volatility. You had value outperform growth by close to 30%. If you were long a, a portfolio of the VIP stocks at Goldman Sachs and short the most shorted stocks, you underperformed by 28%. If you were long momentum, momentum underperformed stocks that didn't have momentum by 18%, so the factors that were driving the market changed a lot during the first quarter. Why was that? That was because uh, interest rates moved. 
you had an 84 basis point move in the 10 year. So, you know, this there, there, there's a question of what's driving the market. With that said, the market continues to perform well. My guess, the same narrative will continue into Q2. And what I mean by that, we're about to see the best April and May in terms of GDP that we've ever seen. My guess is it could be the best April and May for the economy that we see in our investing careers. Hmm. The amount of growth as the economy reopens will, will, will be unequal. So I'm hugely confident that the economy is going to grow. I'm very bullish on the economy. There's a massive amount of liquidity. So um, there's $4.4 trillion sitting in money market accounts. I think retail has a trillion and a half of that, almost a trillion more in money markets today than a year ago. Because everything's been shut in, there's been a trillion and a half of forced savings. Consumers haven't been able to spend that money. Some estimate by the time we fully open, that number will be two and a half trillion, 12% of GDP. So the combination of lots of money and the world reopening, I think clearly has to be constructive for, for equities. With that said, interest rates are clearly going to move up. I'm not sure how much. Everyone expects rates to move up. They're 170 today. Mm-hmm. I think the, fo- the forwards expect them to be you know, 192 by year end. But even over the next five or 10 years, the forwards on 10-year rates are like 225. So rates are going up, but it's not a very, very high rate environment. So the combination, and the rates are going up for the right reasons, hopefully, right? It's going up because the economy is reopening. We're doing a handoff from massive uh, monetary policy that got us out of the COVID shutdown to fiscal policy. So there could be different stocks that work in the market. I'm not smart enough to know if you want to own, you know, what, what factor you want to own. But generally, I think it's constructive time to own equities. Risk return may not be as good as it's been in the past, but given how much the economy, how strong the economy is going to be and how much liquidity there is, I think you probably want to be long equities. We at Corvex are balanced between owning things that are, quote, reopening trades, the casino type names, the mm-hmm. MGMs, where, you know, my guess is I don't have a crystal ball, but my guess is they're about to see massive pent up demand and behavior in May and April will be, you know, record like in terms of consumer activity. So we have about a third of our portfolio in names like that at reasonable values, buying stocks, not buying the market, but leverage the world reopening. We have about a third of our portfolio in what I'll call Garpy growth tech names, where I'm comfortable with my valuation support. I don't care if interest rates are two or three. Frankly, the stocks are probably worth more if the 10 years three, because the economy is growing. Tone names like Amazon and Google and, and Microsoft, great businesses at reasonable value, valuations mm-hmm. that frankly are going are gonna to grow a lot. And if the economy grows, they'll grow more. So I'm not. I don't need to discount those stocks, those cash flows, mm-hmm. off a two percent, off a two percent ten year to have them work a couple multiple turns higher than the S and P, and that's about twenty five to thirty percent of our portfolio. And then the other forty percent hopefully sits in where we're buying, you know, idiosyncratic stock stories. Where we're buying value that's been thrown out. So uh, companies that are not directly affected by COVID, that are defensive businesses with high quality cash flow streams that are going through events where I like the valuation. So is it T-Mobile buying Sprint? Is it Altice, a, 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 you know, a, a predictable you know, uh, cable company with very predictable cash flows that's using money to invest for growth and or buyback stock? Or is it Exelon, which is a utility that's, that's spinning off its, um, its nuclear generation and a clean energy story? So, or is it Coca-Cola? Ener- yeah, please. No, so... This is interesting. I mean, when when, you know, we've heard from other fund managers who are, you know, managing billions of dollars like like you are, and they may be hedged to a rise in interest rates through a, you know, a a bond sort of um, instrument, whether it's, you know, tips or or whatever. 
when you describe your portfolio, it sounds like you are hedged, but you're doing it through the kinds of equities that you've invested in. Is that fair to, to sum it up kind of that way? When you talk about Garpy Tech, you're talking about like the alphabets of the world and, and Microsofts and things like that. Is, is that how it could, did I add a, did, did I appropriately describe that or, or am I off? No, I think that's right. We, we, we own equities. We're not trying to make a call on one type of equity. We want to own great businesses at reasonable valuations. Now, the hedge that we have on is sort of a Texas hedge. In addition to owning a balanced portfolio of equities, we're long commodities. So the risk is I'm not worried about the Fed not being all in. They didn't show up with a bazooka. They showed up with the whole military, right? So the <laughs> Fed is there. And I think things work until the Fed pulls back. What's going to cause the Fed to pull back? It's when they get worried about inflation. What will lead into that? Commodities. So from my perspective, the frame I have is own equities as long as the Fed is behind you. Mm. The Fed will be behind you until they get worried about inflation. So a balanced equity portfolio with commodity overlay is how we're currently situated. Interesting. Let me, um, let me get some folks from the uh, committee, my investment committee, in uh, with you, Keith, if I may. Steve Weiss, you have something for Keith Meister? I do. So I agree with you on the growth hey, in the economy that we're going to see. Hey, hey Keith, good to see you. Um, I agree with you in growth in the, in the economy. And I also believe that you can add in CapEx spending, which had been declining the last couple of years, to really ratchet up. Now, having said that, doesn't that take your scenario of inflation closer to where we are now versus where the Fed sees it? going further out. And I realize they're giving themselves an out by saying it'll be transitory. But to me, that's the biggest risk. And that dovetails with your commodity exposure. You don't own commodities because you think they're going to stay flat or go down. So, so Steve, what you're saying, you know, is, is potentially right. And people have been worried about inflation for a decade around similar types of themes. And as you lay it up, it feels like we're going to have inflation. The offset, and I'd refer to my friend David Zervos at Jeffries here, the offset is demographics, and deflationary technology. Neither one of those two really support runaway inflation. So I'm not smart enough to know, is the tail of a lot of inflation been increased? Of course it is. So that's why we own commodities. How exactly is this going to play out? I don't know. And we want to be balanced because we don't know. But do I see a world in which you could have economic growth without having you know, inflation and we get to the Fed's target of 2% growth and everything sort of settles in? Sure. And if we do, it'll be because of demographics and deflationary technology forces. Let me ask you this as again, you know, sort of circling back to where we started and your second SPAC deal. Do you and it's with uh, Somalogic, by the way, is the name. It's a, an AI driven uh, proteomics platform. Uh, I hope I said that right. <laughs> um, a company valued at one point two, three billion dollars. Do you feel like you have gotten in um, with that deal as the, as the do, garage door has, has, has come down and there's barely any light shining now from the SPAC, in the SPAC market, there was only like one SPAC priced in the last 24 hours, which, you know, people are saying, I, they can't remember the last time that happens because it seems like you've gotten a dozen a day. So let, let's differentiate the SPAC market from any specific deals. There could be good deals and there could be bad deals. The SPAC market itself is, um, you know, there, the faucet's being turned off, which is probably a good and healthy thing. Uh, you can't go from having 24 SPAC IPOs a week. You've had, I think, you have 400 SPACs out there with $150 billion looking for deals. Um, too many SPACs, many of whom aren't, aren't differentiated, is clearly the headline. The market will self-correct on that. 
ultimately the SPAC sponsors who have, um, you know, proprietary deal flow, competitive advantage in doing deals because they're partners who add value will have continuing continuous business models. Is that 24 SPACs a week? Probably not. Is it a handful of SPACs? Yes, a week. The people who will win are those who can invest in companies and help make them more valuable. I think myself, and you'll hear from my partner, Eli Kasdan, we formed a venture called CM Life Sciences, Kasdan Meister Life Sciences. We have expertise in corporate and capital formation. Eli and his team have tremendous expertise in an area of the market, life sciences, where there's a, a, a huge number of amazing businesses that are early in their growth cycle, where they need capital to accelerate that growth. And they need you know, some you know, um, experienced super, supervision from people who understand the public markets. We think we can come together with our CM Life franchise and be great partners of choices for these businesses. We did our first transaction semaphore in February and recently announced our second, mm -hmm. Soma Logic. Soma is an amazing proteomics business. Your pronunciation was correct. I'll let Eli get into the specifics. I'll get. I'll let Eli get into the specifics. But what they do is it's an enabling technology to um, analyze, in this case, seven thousand going to ten thousand proteins to be pro to help companies, biopharma companies, develop drugs, knowing how to target proteins and drive results. Ultimately, it'll evolve into clinical applications as well. It's a great business with an existing revenue stream, a great management team where our capital will help them accelerate mm -hmm. their growth. Is but we're not just we're not just showing up with capital. We showed up with a board of four of the industry leading experts. Uh, Kevin Conway, the CEO of Exact Sciences, Troy Cox was number two person at Genentech, was the CEO of Foundation. Uh, Steve Quake is one of the leading professors at at Stanford on the space. And and, and, and these people are going to add uh, uh, tremendous value. In addition to that, we can bring in long term investors who can be great partners. So, you know, the pipe process by which SPACs raise capital is a great market check. We were able to do our deal at the right price with the right partners. And as a result, it's trading at a, you know, a, 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 a premium, but not a huge premium to where we did our transaction. But the company now has $650 million of capital on its balance sheet. It has SoftBank. It has T. Rowe. It has strategic partners in terms of Illumina. It has a leading board of directors. And it has all the money it needs to accelerate its growth. And through the Kasdan partnership, Soma Logic with a great CEO, Roy, Dr. Roy Smythe, who's an amazing person. We, we should, you, next time we do this, Scott, you should have Roy on your show. He left running the Baylor medical system mm -hmm. because he thought he, could change, he thought he could change more lives by helping uh, on the business side. And he's really committed to, to, to using healthcare, you know, business to drive health outcomes. You meet people like Roy and you feel optimistic about the world. So like for us to help this company get public, with more capital, with more know-how, you know, because for many companies, and proteomics is an emerging space, the, the bare thesis is, will they get there fast enough? Will they have enough money to do it? Now it's bigger, better, faster. So, so Somalogic is going to have 650 plus million of cash on its balance sheet, the right strategic partners, the right board, and they'll be all partner with industry as the winner in this burgeoning me, space. And we think, you know, the sky, the, the sky's the limit for the company. Let me ask you quickly before I let you run. Um, is this it? Is there going to be a CM3? Um, you know, look, I think it would be we've we've had a lot of fun doing this and we've been you know, very successful in our first two. So I would expect to see a CM3 and more action from Eli and myself in the in the weeks to come. We will look forward to hearing it uh, about it then. Keith, thank you very much. We're going to take a break. I'm going to let you run. You be well. Stay safe. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. Appreciate the time. All right. That's Keith Meister joining us up next. Eli Kazan, he's the founder and CIO of Kazan Capital. He's a big investor in life sciences. He's going to give us his best stock picks in that space as well. Look forward to that in an area we just don't talk about enough. 
uh, frankly, that much. We are back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. I'm Courtney Reagan, and here's your CNBC News update at this hour. George Floyd's girlfriend testified today at the murder trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, talking about how she was taken with Floyd's raspy southern voice when they first met at a Salvation Army shelter where he was a security guard. She said both of them struggled with opioid addiction. It's a classic story of uh, how many people get addicted to opioids. <laughs> We both suffered from chronic pain. We got addicted and and tried really hard to uh, break that addiction many times. The Washington Nationals home opener with the New York Mets has been postponed due to what's being called ongoing COVID contact tracing involving members of the Nationals organization. It's not known when the game will be played, but officials say it won't be tomorrow. And after a 33-year career that featured three national championships, North Carolina basketball coach Roy Williams is retiring. He has 903 career wins. At first, I thought that was an April Fool's joke, but it appears it is not. Scott, back over to you. All right, Court, appreciate that very much. Thank you. The life sciences revolution, that's where our next guest has been finding opportunities and putting his money to work. Eli Kasdan is the founder and CIO of Kasdan Capital. He's with us live. It's good to see you again. Scott, thanks for having me. Yeah, congratulations on the deal that we just talked to, uh, to Keith about. I, I'd like to focus uh, more, if, if we may, on, on what you do you know, more for a living um, on a regular basis, and that's invest in the life sciences space through either healthcare or biotech or industrials or technology companies related to that. What, what is your outlook for the remainder of the year for the life sciences investing space? Frankly, an area that we just don't talk about all that much beyond the obvious places of the pandemic and the vaccines. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I was listening uh, to Keith and learning a, a ton as everyone was speaking. I think that the exciting thing for me is I don't, you know, we think about interest rates and we think about sort of uh, macro issues, but really we are investing in a space that is growing so quickly and is so impactful to the broader economy over the next decade, that it's really, uh, the, the demand side is so high that really all we're trying to do is find best companies serving that demand, whether they're enabling research as Somalogic does or taking that research and matching it with EMR data like uh, Semaphore does to deliver better care or ultimately, like companies like Relay and other drug developers uh, like Fate taking that insight and technology and applying it to transforming disease through a new therapies. Um, there's really just an endless amount of opportunity. And so I spend my day sort of just looking for the best in breed companies, best in breed technologies, and then trying to give them as much capital as possible 
to execute over uh, the long run. We've been doing it in this fund for 10 years. I've been at it for about 20 uh, professionally since business school and then actually grew up in a, in a family that's been doing it since the early 80s. Mm -hmm. um, you, you're, you're doing it at a time when the market has been rewarding a lot of these companies. You know, I'm looking right here as, as you were talking, the S&P is adding to its gains today. It's another new high. You know, the Nasdaq's 13,400. And a lot of the stocks in your in your universe in universe, excuse me, trade w within that uh, realm. You mentioned a company called Fate Therapeutics, right? Eight billion dollar valuation. Uh, Invitae is another one we we've heard a lot about over the last many months. Near eight billion dollars. Exact Sciences. You have a lot of stocks in the Kathy Wood universe, right? In the ARC mm -hmm. funds, which are really front and center for what we've been speaking about over the last many weeks. Um, are you concerned about the way that those stocks have been trading of late? It's uh, not concern. It's, it's, uh, it takes a little bit of fortitude to be a long-term growth investor with the volatility. Um, I, but I think you got to keep in mind that when you have a company, you said, you know, fake therapeutics, an $8 billion market cap company. Um, Amgen maybe is the largest uh, biotech today at 150 billion. Um, that's in the context of trillion dollar market cap companies that you guys have talked about in the last hour. Um, and these companies, when successful, transform an industry, healthcare industry that's spending three trillion plus uh, a year in, in expenditures that are largely going to managing chronic disorders that have progressed and have very little treatment and you know, opportunity and a lot of inefficiency. So I, I feel like you got to put the numbers in context. Certainly, eight billion is uh, is not a small number, but in the context of the impact that companies like Invitae or Fate have, or potentially will have, it's really quite uh, small. Do Do you feel like we're in the midst of a re-rating, though, of a lot of those stocks by virtue of of where rates have gone and the multiples are compressing? for obvious reasons relative to what rates are doing. Yeah, I think we've certainly seen that, right? And um, and that's the volatility I'm, I'm speaking to, except, you know, in that environment, what happens is you have a differentiation between uh, all the companies that seem alike, and then over time you get these re-ratings, and those that are true growers and that have differentiated technologies and um, strong management teams, they ultimately outperform and break through the, the pack and I think you've seen that uh, in technology, uh, traditional technology companies throughout the, the past couple of decades. And you'll see that in life sciences, where in the early days, everyone thinks every company is the same. And then when you have these dislocations, those with strong balance sheet execute through, like in Invite, um or Fate or Semaphore or Somalogic. I think if you tie it back to what Keith and I are trying to do through our SPACs is give companies like a Somalogic, an enormous amount of capital and great board uh, sponsorship and expertise so that they can ride through these moments of dislocation and come out the other side. You, you have, uh, you know, the, the beyond the sort of those names, the Sareptas, which, you know, we've talked about on this program before because one of our investment committee members who's with me today, Steve Weiss, is a, is a prior investor. I, I don't think he, he's he's still there. A name I don't see, um, and it may just not be on my list and you may, in fact, own it is Moderna. And I'm just curious uh, because of the tremendous, uh, right, a company that literally is, has changed the world or certainly has, has helped it, has helped the, 
change the world. Why that's not in your portfolio? That's sort of a wry smile you have there, too. Well, what's, what's the deal? Uh, well, so, um, you know, I think we've done a good job, but even we make mistakes and, uh, and miss opportunities. We actually passed on two private rounds of investing in Moderna, and, um, and mostly because we weren't sure what a vaccine, what a transformative vaccine company was really worth in the days that we were looking at it. Clearly, it's worth a lot and, and um, uh, has done just an amazing job. And so um, we don't always get it right. And so that's why I smile. <laughs> I will just give you a little context for the company that I think sort of underpins why we're so excited broadly about the space. And I had the, the CEO, Stefan Banchel, on a, on a call the other day. We're, we're, we're close and had him on a call for some of my investors. Do you know that the story he tells is he's reading the Wall Street Journal in January and reads an article about a sort of uh, uh, influenza-like outbreak in China, un, un, uh, un misunderstood or not yet identified. He calls the NIH we've been working with. He says, what's going on? They say, we just sequenced the, the virus, which in 2003 with SARS would have taken seven months and cost hundreds, if not millions of dollars. Today, you can do that in a day for under $1,000. They digitally sent him the genome of uh, the SARS virus. In two days, he had a uh, an mRNA vaccine prototype that is identical to the vaccine we're taking today. So in two days, he was able to produce uh, a working prototype. In 42 days, he had uh, you know uh, treatment quality uh, yeah. uh, manufacturing for that. That's remarkable. So in 44 days, you know that that. You could never have done that in history. And that's just an example of how fast and how far the field has come in a very short time. What, before I let you go, what, what's the next Moderna, right? That, that's, what, that's what my viewers want to know. Um, and by the way, you get in the Baseball Hall of Fame if you swing and miss seven out of ten times. So it's, it's all good. <laughs> you're, you're doing fine. Uh, but what's the next one? Give me, give me a yeah. name or two that really excites you that, that could literally change the world. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think, um, you know, you go to the doctor, they pull out a stethoscope and they listen to you or they put a cusp on your wrist and they and they check your blood pressure. Um, they completely ignore the molecular signals that are flowing through your blood, the proteins that are that are telling uh, your body that you have heart disease. That is and this is years earlier or that you're having neurodegenerative disorders or that you have, you know, cancer. You can in in your blood, you can test for these diseases at a super early stage. And actually, early intervention is almost always more effective than therapeutic intervention. And so Somalogic, I, you know, I'm sort of pitching something that Keith and I just did, but Somalogic is pulling that information out of the blood in the proteome and starting to turn it into clinical diagnostics. And in a decade, you are gonna go and have a very different experience at the physician's office about what's going on with your body and, and I'm, Pretty confident Somalogic will be behind it and uh, profiting uh, by it. And I would say that this space is great because you can do uh, you can do well by doing good. And, and, and so that's one of those companies. Yeah, interesting. I uh, appreciate your time. It's good to see you again. We will uh, certainly do this again sometime. Uh, Eli Kazan, you stay well, and we'll talk to you again soon. I yeah, really appreciate it. Stay safe. Thank right. you. Yep. Stay with us as well. John has his unusual activity coming up. We'll take a quick break, and we'll do it next. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, 
drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Dr. J, there he is. Good to see you, Doc. Unusual. Good to be with you, Scott. Well, I know you're looking for, Scott. I know you're looking for some unusual activity instead of uh, unusual that I'm on just the phone. That's right. But this time it's Qualcomm. Qualcomm, they're buying the next week out 140 calls, Scott. Uh, that's with the stock right here at like 135.70 or so. Um, one week out, they bought 10,000 of these calls very quickly. Now you see the volume moving up towards 12,000 of them. That's an awful lot. I love the upside for this stock. I bought these uh, at the money calls, Scott, sold some out of the money calls against it. Second trade, take a look at what's going on in Angie's list. That's what it used to be called. Now it's just Angie, A-N-G-I, but it's a $6 billion company. And they're doing a lot of things right, apparently. I know Loop Capital has some upside uh, on them to 15 or 18 bucks, something like that. And we see big upside call buying for regular April, not the Aprils that, I'm sorry, May 15s, May 15s, even longer. You got the May 15s out there, Scott. I bought those calls that are more or less the at the money. And I'm looking for a lot of upside out of this one as people get contractors and look for them on Angie's list. I think that's going to be great for ANGI. All right. Good stuff. Uh, Farmer Jim, real quick to you. I'm looking at my screen because I, I did get a tweet on Qualcomm earlier. Uh, I know you, you obviously like John's pick. The tweet says, I followed Jim into QCOM, that's Qualcomm, <laughs> getting killed here. What to do? Getting killed. Oh, come on. That's Getting what killed. they say, what? Jim. Seriously, if you can't take. <laughs> That's what they say. I hear you, but, and I don't, listen, I never want anybody, I'm not going to minimize anybody's losses, but for goodness sakes, don't sell. You got to understand with a stock that could be up 50% over the next 12 months, yeah, it might go down 15% from a high set a couple of months ago that itself was up 100% over 18 months. So listen, with the reward of good returns, you got to take the volatility, not minimizing your losses, but for goodness sakes, stick with it. Okay. I just wanted to get your answer on that. Appreciate it. Ask Halftime's next. More questions, more answers. You can send them in. We'll play it on air. We'll do a video one, too, if you send it in. Ask Halftime at CNBC.com. We'll be right back. All right, let's answer some of your questions now. Farmer Jim coming to you, Gabriel, in Florida. I follow Jim Lane, but another person is following you, Jim. I followed the <laughs> farmer into Marathon Petroleum in my Roth IRA about a year ago. I bought it about $18. Should I hold, sell, or reduce my position? You should hold your position. 18, now it's 54. It's down from 60. It'll be back above 60 probably, I think, this quarter when they close the sale of the Speedway gas chain, get a ton of gas in, uh, excuse me, a ton of cash in to refinance their balance sheet. Uh, also, refinery utilization is picking up. Prices for gas are picking up. Things are looking pretty good for the refiners right now, and this is the best of the bunch. Don't be flustered, Jimmy. You should be flattered. I mean, this is, these are flattering moments, right? <laughs> 
Yeah. Gas, cash, Qualcomm, Marathon. It's all good. It's, it's all, all good. Together. All right, Weiss, see you. Uh, from Brian uh, in St. Charles. Uh, for Steve Weiss, uh, Jumia, you've talked about it posit- positively about this name many times in the past. Sure has. Uh, stock's been under pressure lately. Do you still like the name? Love the name. I added to it. They had two things going against them. They had a terrible tape for high-growth tech stocks, and then they had an offering. The offering was done as of Monday, and it was done at 38 and change. I think the stock regains its old highs, and it's moving up positively since that pricing on Monday. All right. Uh, Megan, for you, from Matt in Chicago, other than traditional safe haven assets, what other ways could you hedge or mitigate a midterm or short-term drawdown? Yeah, well, for certain investors, uh, something like buying a put or a covered call writing strategy or even structured notes might be appropriate. Um, be careful here. You can bleed premium um, and, and continue paying out costs as the market continues to go up. And ultimately, you may have been better off just riding through it. There's also low vol or low beta ETFs that you can look into um, and qual- quality ETFs which should lose less than the market if we see a pullback. Ultimately, diversification and riding through a short-term pullback is probably your best bet. All right, good stuff. Thank you for that. We'll take a quick break, and we'll come back with Final Trades next. Missed the show? Don't sweat it. The Halftime Report now has a podcast. Market-moving interviews, call of the day, unusual activity, and, of course, Ask Halftime. Look for us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app and subscribe to the Halftime Pod today. It is final trade time. By the way, an update, Jim Cramer's final trade yesterday. Did you guys see this? Salesforce leading the Dow today. It's up nearly 3%. I just thought that I would mention that. Farmer Jim, give me your final trade. Yeah, Qualcomm. As the song goes from Hamilton, and this is for Steve Weiss, you'll be back. That's you just stop there. Wow. Okay. You want? Well, I, I mean, you want me? To- <laughs> no, no, we don't. No, we no, don't. No, no, although, no, 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 no. Although oh, I do have to say that wasn't as bad as I expected. I'm going to throw that out there. Megan, final trade. Um, the iShares Value Factor ETF. We like value. I talked about this at the outset, but this is an interesting vehicle because a lot of times when you buy a, a value ETF, you're getting an overweight to financials okay. and energy, and this gives a broader sector okay. representation. All right, Steve Weiss, quick, please. I bought Volkswagen in addition to my ownership in Porsche, the okay. cheapest car company in the world. All right, Volkswagen. That's Volkswagen to you. Dr. J, a name. MPC, Marathon Petroleum. It's Jim Stock, and I love the upside calls. All right, good stuff. Good holiday to everybody, too. That does it for us. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself.
Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.